You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The morning dew still sparkled when the lieutenant governor's daughter crossed the lush grounds of the manor and saddled her horse. It was a beautiful day for a ride. With the salt wind in her hair and the rising sun on her face, she rode east along the high shores of the inlet toward the end of the peninsula. Point Pleasant. An apt name, she thought. With pretty groves of evergreens intersected by winding roads, it certainly was a charming spot. She followed one of the roads north, deeper into the forest, through a clearing and past the Prince of Wales Tower, a now antiquated Martello. She knew that she would find the fort further east on a hill overlooking the harbor, but she had no interest in soldiers, at least no interest at this particular moment. She and her little horse were happy with the relative solitude that this morning ride afforded them, so she wound her way north instead. She came to a rustic bridge with a bubbling freshwater brook flowing beneath it. This was the Kissing Bridge, as some of the servants had called it. Located halfway between the city and Point Pleasant, the romantic location was said to be a popular twilight rendezvous among the young and the amorous. But now, with the sun newly risen, it was blessedly empty, and she sat there a moment to bask in the silence. A silence that was, unfortunately, short-lived. Low, gruff voices of men rose from the water's edge. She craned her neck and watched as three sailors rowed to the shoreline and began filling empty casks with fresh water from the stream. Her solitude now disrupted, she rode east to Black Rock Beach. Perhaps there she could be alone. Her horse trotted lightly among the scattered stone and driftwood as she gazed along the beach and saw that here, too, she had company. Through the rippling reflections of the sun on the sea, she could barely make out a lonely silhouette at the edge of the water. Getting closer, she could see the figure was airborne but unmoving, at the edge of an old gun battery facing east across the harbor. Closer still in her careful approach, she could hear the rhythmic creaking of iron chains swinging in the breeze and the cries of gulls whirling high overhead. She caught a faint scent of tar mixed with salt and sea spray. Rounding the edge of the battery, she gasped. It was the body of a dead man, or what was left of it. Decades of exposure had worn much of it away, leaving a grisly mess of tattered clothing and mottled bones, sun-bleached in some areas, brown with tar in others. It had been hung here deliberately, just steps away from a well-tread path, and serving as a grim reminder to all coming and going through the harbor. This was a pirate's fate. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. This is part two on my series about the pirate Edward Jordan. Last time, I told you about the mystery that several sailors encountered when they joined the crew of a schooner called the Three Sisters. We examined the suspicious state of the ship's hold and her cargo. We covered the bizarre behavior of her self-proclaimed owner, Edward Jordan, her self-proclaimed captain, John Kelly, their last desperate attempt to escape to Ireland, and their ultimate capture by the Royal Navy. Brought to Halifax in chains, Jordan, Kelly, and Jordan's wife Margaret were charged with murder, piracy, and robbery. 
Tonight, we'll look past the legends, at the actual events that led to these charges, as well as the fate of those charged. So take a seat by the fire and lean in close as I tell you the rest of the story of the pirate, Edward Jordan. Edward and Margaret Jordan, Irish citizens, husband and wife, parents to four small children, went before a special court of admiralty in Halifax, Nova Scotia, on November 15, 1809. John Kelly was tried one month later. All were charged with murder, piracy, and robbery. All of them pled innocent. The trials themselves must have attracted quite a bit of attention. By now, the golden age of piracy was long over, but the stories of legendary pirates like Henry Morgan, Blackbeard, Captain Kidd, and Bart Roberts had kept the public's interest and imagination captive for over 80 years. Acts of piracy were increasingly rare by 1809, so the trial of a husband-and-wife pirate duo would have been something of a sensation. Just a few weeks after the trial, a booklet appeared on the streets of Boston that summarized the proceedings for curious readers. It sold for 20 cents each, or $1.50 for a dozen. A year later, a report that also included a summary of John Kelly's trial was published and sold. Inside, the crimes of the accused were described as, quote, so atrocious in nature that they must appear to surpass the supposed limits of human depravity, end quote. I'll talk more about those crimes, but before I tell you about the actions of Edward Jordan, the pirate, I think it's important to go back and understand more about Edward Jordan, the man, and the experiences that led him to that fateful day in the autumn of 1809. Edward, or Ned Jordan, was born the son of farmers in County Carlow, Ireland, in 1771. Sixteen years later, his father died, and Ned inherited the farm. He worked dutifully under his mother's supervision and earned a reputation in his region for being honest and hardworking. Eventually, he was made deputy receiver of the rents for his landlord's estate and became a respected member of the community. All of that went up in smoke just ten years later. Late in 1797, Ned Jordan, 26 at the time, was accused of moonlighting as a member of the United Irishmen, a radical revolutionary group. It was said he was exercising militants on a nearby hill under the cover of darkness. It was an accusation that he denied his entire life, right up to his execution. Despite his fervent denial, Jordan was arrested and locked in the local guardhouse for eight days. On the ninth day, without a trial or even learning the name of his accuser, Jordan was informed that he and eight other prisoners were to be shot the following day. That night, Jordan made his escape. Outside the guardhouse, under the escort of two guards, Jordan broke free from his captors, sprinted across the yard, and leapt over the wall. The sentinels of his landlord's hall tried to shoot him as he ran, and guards gave chase on foot and on horseback. Somehow, Jordan managed to evade his pursuers and found himself in an unfamiliar part of the country. He found work as a servant on a farmstead, laid low, and waited out the winter. By April of the following year, the government was coming down hard on the dissidents, and a full-on rebellion loomed. Finding his situation growing ever more desperate, Jordan fled into the wilderness. Two months later, Jordan would get word that the Irish army had raided his farm, torched his house, 
and burned his mother alive. If Ned Jordan was truly innocent and not a member of the rebellion, he now had every reason to join the cause. Jordan made his way to the closest rebel camp and was welcomed with open arms. He was given the command of a party of men and fought in a number of battles. According to his end-of-life confession, during his time in the rebellion, Jordan managed to save the lives of three Protestants about to be put to death by some of the Catholic rebels. He also, apparently, saved the life and property of a merchant who was nearly robbed and murdered by his fellow fighters. By the end of 1798, after a number of bloody massacres and atrocities, the Irish rebellion was over. The king offered amnesty and Jordan took it, turning himself in. He was pardoned and married Margaret Croke, the daughter of a corn farmer. The bloodshed of the rebellion and the tragedy of his mother's murder was behind him. A new life with a new family was just beginning, and you'd be forgiven if you thought that the rest of the story would be summed up by the words, happily ever after. But fate still had Ned in its sights. Just one year later, Jordan found himself back in jail, this time on a technicality. Somehow, his pardon had not been signed by the Lord Lieutenant. He was arrested once again and accused of committing robbery and murder while part of the rebellion. To his relief, he was eventually acquitted. Tasting freedom once again, Jordan worked for a company of merchants for four years until they went bankrupt and then decided to try his luck across the ocean in America. Ned and Margaret bounced around from New York to Montreal and then to farms throughout Quebec, barely making ends meet. Here, a farm succumbed to debt. There, a merchant came on hard times and couldn't pay his wage. According to the testimony of Margaret Jordan, this is about the time Ned transformed from a kind and loving husband into a wretched, jealous, and abusive alcoholic. By 1808, Jordan had borrowed money from quite a few lenders and was eking out a living in Gaspé, Quebec, as the employee of one of those lenders, the merchants John and John Tremaine. If you recognize that name from earlier, you know that this is when things go from bad to worse. It seems that Jordan had dreams beyond toiling beneath merchants and farmers. He wanted to be his own boss and have more control of his profit. Using the money he had borrowed, Jordan purchased a schooner and named her Three Sisters in honor of his three young daughters. But Jordan wasn't much of a sailor. He wanted to own the vessel, not work it. Nor was he wealthy enough to fully realize his investment. He could not afford the rigging or the crew to put her to sea. So, in the fall of 1808, Jordan arrived in Halifax with a shipment of fish to pay off his debt and a proposition for the Tremaines. If they would pay for the rigging and the crew, they could hire his vessel and use it over the winter to transport cargo within the West Indies. They would take Jordan's share to pay for the rigging and then, once his debt was paid, give him his fair share of the profits. When the winter was over, he'd reclaim his schooner and, one imagines, sail off into the sunset, an accomplished and financially independent man. Things didn't quite go as planned. According to Edward Jordan's official confession, here's what happened. At least in his eyes. The Tremaines agreed to Jordan's proposal, and he returned to Gaspé with rigging and a crew. 
Jordan stayed behind with his family as the crew sailed the schooner to Halifax. He had left all the necessary documentation with the captain, including a bill of sale and a letter granting the Tremaine's general power of attorney, everything they would need to register the vessel and put her to work. After spending the winter and spring in Gaspé, Jordan returned to Halifax in June of 1809 to receive his schooner and settle his account. He waited for 16 days before finally receiving word from the Tremaines. What he would learn would shock him. The three sisters' trip to the West Indies was not as profitable as he had hoped. Not by a long shot. As the owner of the vessel, he was presented with a bill for all of the expenses that the schooner incurred since leaving Quebec over six months ago. The rigging, the port fees, the crew's salary, all of it. Jordan was now deeply in debt to the Tremaines and had no way to pay them back. Weeks later, Margaret Jordan stood on the wharf of Gaspé and watched anxiously as a boat launched from the three sisters and rowed to shore. The boat was carrying her husband, Ned Jordan, the vessel's new captain, John Stairs, and, she hoped, fresh clothing and necessities for her four children, who were standing ragged and nearly naked beside her. Instead, she learned, along with everyone else in town, a number of distressing revelations. A handwritten letter from the offices of J&J Tremaine was delivered to the courts by Captain John Stairs. It outlined the following. 1. Edward Jordan now owed a tremendous debt to J&J Tremaine of Halifax. 2. Unable to pay his debts, Jordan had been jailed for a time, and his credit was now destroyed. 3. The schooner, Three Sisters, named in honor of Ned and Margaret's daughters, now belonged to the Tremaines, despite Jordan's insistence that he had never sold it. With this announcement, everyone in the area who had loaned money to the Jordans, and it seemed there had been quite a few, called in their debts at once. Completely broke and unable to pay their creditors, Ned and Margaret's home and property were seized by the courts and sold at one-third of the value. Ned Jordan was, in his own words, driven to despair, and he proceeded to get blind, stinking drunk every single day. There was some good news, however. Good enough anyway for a penniless couple with four mouths to feed. The three sisters was in port to pick up a shipment of fish from a number of sources, including Jordan himself. Captain Stair suggested that the Jordan family join them on the voyage back to Halifax. With a little luck, along with a little charity from the Tremaines, Ned would find his prospects for employment far more favorable in Halifax than here. With their home seized and sold, and with no worldly possessions aside from what they wore on their backs, the Jordans agreed, and the three sisters set sail again on September 10, 1809. John Stairs served as captain, Thomas Heath as pilot, Benjamin Matthews as seaman, and John Kelly as mate. Only one of them would make it to the next port. Over the first few days of the voyage, a drunken Edward Jordan got it into his head that upon his arrival in Halifax, the Tremaines would not offer employment, but rather have him arrested and thus destroy him and his family completely. Jordan had also developed a deep and jealous resentment of Captain Stairs. Margaret Jordan, crestfallen that her husband had failed to return with money or materials for her family, 
begged Captain Stairs to help her clothe her children. Not having much in the way of children's clothing on board, but wanting to help just the same, Stairs provided Margaret with some calico, a rough, plain-woven fabric that would serve the children better than the rags they were wearing. This act of charity was, to Ned, an insult. Jordan had lost everything. He couldn't even clothe his own family, and now he was forced to accept charity from the very man who was taking his ship. The ship named for the children he had failed. The ship that was symbolic of the future that he felt had been unjustly ripped away. As he drank and wallowed in rage and self-pity, it dawned on him that maybe the calico wasn't given in charity at all. For why would the agent of such duplicitous men as the Tremaines show charity to others? It made sense in his increasingly unraveled mind that this simple act of kindness was actually in exchange for the sexual favors of his wife. To Edward Jordan, Captain John Stairs, the man who was taking his livelihood, was now taking his family, too. Regardless of whether Jordan was right and the Tremaines had indeed stolen his schooner, or, more likely, he simply didn't understand the nature of the agreement they had made, drunken despair, jealousy, and anger would cause him to seal his fate. On September 13, 1809, the Three Sisters was en route to Halifax, somewhere between Cape Canso and Whitehead, Nova Scotia. Just before noon, Matthews went forward to trim the sails, while Captain Stairs and his navigator, Thomas Heath, went below. Standing in the sun that streamed through the vessel's skylight, Captain Stairs called out to John Kelly, who stood at the helm just above them and offered up a glass of grog. When Kelly bent down to take the glass, the grim face of Edward Jordan appeared over his shoulder. Jordan aimed a pistol through the skylight and fired. A burst of black powder blinded Stairs as the bullet narrowly grazed his nose, slashed across the side of his face, and slammed into the chest of Thomas Heath, dropping him to his knees. Stairs wiped the black powder from his face and ran to his trunk. It was empty. The lock had been broken. His pistols and cutlass were gone. He turned back and followed a trail of blood left by Heath, who had crawled up on deck. Stairs reached the ladder just as Jordan was descending, a pistol in his left hand and an axe in his right. Captain Stairs grabbed Jordan's arms and pleaded for his life. They struggled to the deck, and Stairs pushed Jordan backward, then screamed for help. Benjamin Matthews ran to his captain's side just as Jordan fired his second shot. Matthews was struck and fell to the deck. Stairs grabbed the gun, wrenched it from Jordan's grasp, and threw it into the sea, then lunged for the axe. The two men fought as Stairs called out for help from John Kelly, the last crewman standing, but Kelly didn't come. Instead, Margaret Jordan answered his cries. She approached Stairs from behind and struck him repeatedly with the handle of a boat hook, yelling, You want Kelly? I'll give you Kelly, as she hit him again and again. Stairs finally managed to break free from the couple and hurled the axe overboard. He ran forward to find a weapon while Jordan went aft. Jordan found a second axe and, according to one testimony, hacked three or four times into the back of Benjamin Matthews' skull. Dazed and bloodied, Captain Stairs called out one last time for John Kelly and saw that the ship's mate was still at the helm. His back was turned and, by his posture and movement, Kelly appeared to be loading a gun. 
Captain Stairs saw that his crew was now either murdered or, apparently, mutinous. Stairs himself was unarmed, outnumbered, and injured. In a desperate attempt to save his life, he pulled the wooden hatch from the hold, heaved it over the side of the ship, and jumped after it into the sea. Jordan ran to the aft of the vessel and readied his pistol, hoping to shoot the desperate man who now clinged for life on the wooden hatch, twirling and turning in their wake. But he couldn't get a clean shot. No matter, he thought. The North Atlantic is frigid and unforgiving at any time of year, and Jordan felt certain that stairs would either drown or freeze to death. He turned his attention to Kelly, the last of the crew, and put the gun to his temple. Put the vessel before the wind, Jordan told him, or I'll blow your brains out. Kelly complied. He watched as Jordan approached Ben Matthews, still writhing and bleeding on deck. He watched him deliver one final blow to the back of Matthews' skull and then toss the body overboard. He watched as the lifeless body of Thomas Heath soon followed. He watched Jordan scrub the blood from the deck and he kept the vessel before the wind. Two days later, Jordan would approach Kelly again, this time with a loaded pistol in one hand and a Bible in the other. Jordan showed Kelly that the pistol was loaded, and then made him swear on the good book, at gunpoint, that he would never divulge to anyone what had happened aboard the three sisters. Twelve days later, the Jordan family and John Kelly would arrive in Fortune Bay, Newfoundland, where our story first began. Jordan would assume the name of John Tremaine, the man responsible, he believed, for bringing him to ruin. John Kelly would take the name of Captain John Stairs, the man he had betrayed, a fellow Freemason and the registered master of the vessel, who they now thought was dead. What both men didn't realize was that, against all odds, Captain John Stairs had survived. After several hours of clinging to life in freezing water, he was picked up by a passing fishing boat and brought to Boston. He reported the event to the authorities, and word quickly spread. A pirate now sailed Canadian waters. Taking the advice of the Royal Council, the Provincial Secretary of Nova Scotia offered a reward for 100 pounds sterling, worth about 8,000 pounds today, to anyone who could bring them to justice. You already know the rest of the story. Edward Jordan and John Kelly would spend the next several weeks bumbling from port to port in a desperate attempt to assemble a crew and escape to Ireland, until they were captured near the Bay of Bulls in Newfoundland. Edward and Margaret stood trial on November 15, 1809. With overwhelming evidence against him, Edward Jordan was found guilty and hanged eight days later. He was 38. As was the custom for guilty pirates, his lifeless body was tarred and put on public display inside a gibbet. It was hung from a wooden beam on an old gun battery on Black Rock Beach in Halifax's Point Pleasant Park. His body would remain there for years, disintegrating bit by bit into the sea. Eventually, people changed their minds about the benefits of publicly displaying corpses. And legend tells us it was a lieutenant governor's daughter who had Jordan finally put to rest after discovering his remains while riding through the park. What was left of Edward Jordan was given a shallow burial in the Battery Ruins. Later, according to Dan Conlon's book Pirates of the Atlantic, 
uh, Mr. Williamson dug up Jordan's skull and gave it to the Mechanics Institute, a forerunner of the Nova Scotia Museum. The worn and weathered skull cap is still in their possession and has occasionally gone on display. Margaret Jordan escaped her husband's fate. Fortunately for her and her children, she was acquitted, the court ruling that she was acting out of fear of her husband rather than any criminal intent. She remained in Halifax long enough to testify for the defense in John Kelly's trial. Then, legend tells us, some charitable Haligonians raised money to return her and her children to Ireland. One imagines that she and her children may have spotted the body of Edward Jordan overlooking the harbor as they made their way back to sea. As for John Kelly, he had a stronger defense than Edward Jordan, but it was not enough to convince the court of his innocence. He was found guilty as charged, but was later pardoned by King George III as part of the monarch's Golden Jubilee celebration. The 20-something sailor faded into history. In March of 1810, two law students published a report of the Jordan and Kelly trials. The introduction includes the following passage. In a few months, the name and the crimes of Jordan will only be remembered by the few whom accident may lead to the spot where his earthly remains are still exhibiting a terrifying example of the end of passions ungoverned by reason. In a few years, when those remains shall have been mingled with their native dust, even his name will be unknown, beyond the records of the court which tried him. Much less will be remembered the motives that induced the commission of his crimes or the surprising and providential means by which they were discovered. Despite this prediction, the name of Edward Jordan never fully faded from memory. He has his own Wikipedia page, and shows up in various books and websites. It is true, however, that his motives have been mostly forgotten, overshadowed by the romance and intrigue that comes with the word pirate. When we think about pirates, we think about ruthless rogues, bigger than life, terrorizing port towns, plundering vessels, and charismatically commanding their crews as they live their lives upon the open sea. We don't think about alcoholic family men, victims of bad luck in their own poor judgment, and failures who get swallowed up in their own desperate and violent existence. Edward Jordan was not a swashbuckling sea dog, as some have suggested. Nor was he a cold-blooded psychotic or a charismatic, bloodthirsty madman who befriended and manipulated John Kelly. And he certainly wasn't a romantic, rebellious bad boy who didn't get the memo that the age of pirates was over. Edward Jordan was a loser who just couldn't seem to make things work. When he, Patrick Power, and John Pickett were in St. John's, they had dinner with a local merchant who was also one of Edward Jordan's former employers. At one point in the evening, the merchant observed that everyone who had worked for him had made good money. Everyone, that is, except for Jordan. Edward Jordan was also a drunk, and a dangerous one, one who felt betrayed and victimized by those around him. There's no doubt he was a terrible person, a murderer, an abuser, a thief, and a coward. But he wasn't always that way. Jordan was a tragic, violent man who met a tragic, violent end. It wasn't the call of adventure or the promise of fortune that created this pirate, but rather the paranoid, drug-addled mind of a man who had precious little to lose. 
And so, without any semblance of a plan, he murdered two men, left another for dead, and then tried to escape. At his trial, Jordan proclaimed his innocence and said that everyone who testified against him were liars. After he was found guilty and sentenced to die, Jordan confessed his crimes in an effort to, as he put it, drive the hell from my bosom. He told those around him that he felt sorry for his actions and that he only really intended to murder Captain Stairs, as if that would somehow make things better. It seems that the lives of Heath and Matthews were collateral damage. The single person he actually intended to kill had managed to escape and, against all odds, survive. Even when it came to murder, Jordan was a failure. He just couldn't get it right. When I first learned about the pirate Edward Jordan, I thought he would be a quick footnote in Fireside Canada, a dash of local history in an episode about other, more famous pirates and the brief time they spent in Canadian waters. But then, as I began my research, as I read all of the varying legends about him, then located the records of his trial, I realized there was a far more interesting, far more human story that deserved to be told. And now it has. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember that legendary villains can have more vulnerability, more humanity, than we sometimes care to admit. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.